Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and this is another edition of IHC Talk. I'm joined again today by my chromogen siblings, Dr. Sonam Lagavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Dr. Andrew Belizzi of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. It's great to see everybody. Hello. Great to see you. It's it's been a while since uh, since we've been together to record a pod, and this is super timely and very important. Yeah, no, it's great to see you guys. I'm jealous you guys got to get together in person recently. So it was fantastic. Andrew is such a great host. If he ever invites you to do something, please accept. <laughs> well, we are talking about a very timely topic today, as you mentioned, Andrew, and we have some really wonderful guests here to discuss the Valid Act. So I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Dr. Emily Volk. Uh, I am the president of the College of American Pathologists. I'm also uh, the chief medical officer at a 250-bed hospital in uh, the Louisville metro area, Baptist Health Floyd. Uh, I am also an associate professor of pathology at the University of Louisville. Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Jonathan Miles. I'm a pathologist uh, at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm here today uh, in my role as a member of the Board of Governors uh, of the College of American Pathologists and Chair of the Council on Government and Professional Affairs. Full disclosure, uh, I think I'm, I think that Jonathan is aware, but in case in case uh, Emily, you're not aware, I wear many hats, uh, literally and and metaphysically. I'm. I'm deeply invested in this issue uh, as in, in one of my roles, I'm the local uh, laboratory director of our immunohistochemistry lab at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. But then perhaps more importantly, I'm, I'm the chair of the College of American Pathologists Immunohistochemistry Committee. And I've been on the College of American Pathologists Immunohistochemistry Committee for 10 years. Cool. We will get to all of that and more, I'm sure. So as, as you know, we're going to be talking about the Valid Act today, but when we're on PathPod, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit more. So John, John and Emily, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got interested in pathology? Yeah, um, I've been really interested in pathology throughout my uh, entire medical career. I went, went to medical school in Toledo, and uh, the chairman there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Peter Goldblatt, who's the son of Harry Goldblatt, um, with the uh, who was involved in uh, renal vascular uh, hypertension. So I, I did an elective in pathology, and uh, I enjoyed it uh, so much. Um, I was actually going to get a PhD in in pathology before I did a residency in surgery, and uh, uh, Dr. Goldblatt says, "Geez." why would you do that? Why not do a residency in pathology? So that's how I did my residency in pathology and I stayed in pathology my entire career. That's pretty amazing. I didn't realize that you could actually get a PhD in pathology. I didn't know that. I'm ashamed to say. Yeah. <laughs> you can get a PhD in pretty much anything. I know you've been at the Cleveland Clinic for your for your career. I, uh, did you do your training there as well? I started, uh, well, actually it goes on before that. I was actually born at uh, one of the Cleveland Clinic hospitals, um, and I uh, started my uh, residency here in uh, 1983. Um, after I completed my residency, I went back to Toledo. To, I was on the faculty there for six years before being back recruited back to Cleveland Clinic 
in 1993 and uh, I've been here since. And uh, I've seen uh, the Cleveland Clinic grow uh, into a world-class um, international institution. And uh, our department has grown uh, dramatically. We have over 100 pathologists. We have operations in Abu Dhabi, um, you know, Las Vegas, Toronto, as well as Florida. You know, I'll tell you that I'm a, you know, I'm a student of history, and uh, I'll I'll say that I'm I'm very proud to follow in the footsteps of Ray Tubbs uh, as chair of the College of American <laughs> Pathologists Immunohistochemistry Committee. He was. He was one of the founders of the, it was called the Cell Markers Committee yeah. back in the late uh, 1980s, actually. Yeah. That's actually how I learned lymphomas with Ray Tubbs. Ray was a reviewer for uh, SWAG. And as a resident, I just wasn't getting, getting a good handle on lymphomas. So uh, Ray says, geez, you want to learn lymphomas? You be the reviewer uh, for the SWAG cases and I'll go over them with you. So that's how I learned, that's how I learned it. That's my kind of mentor. Oh, that's awesome. Quite committed to your institution to have born, been born there, too. That's very impressive as well. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Um, going to the hospital I was born at, the, the boardroom there is uh, the original paneling, you know, from, from when I was born many years ago. Emily, can you relate relate your background? How do, I how sure do, can. Yeah, absolutely. probably some pathway between the hospital that you were born and then becoming the president of the CAP. Probably some things happened in between. So uh, I was I was born uh, into a family uh, involved in medicine. My dad was an obstetrician gynecologist. Mom was a nurse. Uh, they used to tell me that I was conceived to go to medical school. They actually met at General Hospital uh, at uh, in Kansas City, uh, where a brand new medical school was being birthed right around the time that I was born. So uh, they tell me that their family planning involved that medical school. Uh, and that's the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So I, I went to medical school right out of high school in one of those six-year compressed programs. So I had kind of a one-track mind. I must admit, when I went into medical school, pathology was not really on the list you know, of specialties that I thought I would end up in. And we had this marvelous teacher, uh, Dr. Ed Freeland, Friedlander. Uh, he's, you may know him as the path guy. Yeah, he was my professor of pathology. Uh, and a couple of weeks into the course, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, you seem like you're sort of a gregarious type, but you might actually like this, you seem to have a knack for it visually, and you seem very interested. So this is a specialty uh, that you can actually do. It's not just a course, right? And um, so he he caught my interest, and I kept coming back to it when I was on my surgical rotations and internal medicine rotations, that all the answers were in the laboratory. And the pathologist seemed to know everything that was going on with every patient in the hospital, which I thought was super cool. So I actually did my residency at the Cleveland Clinic uh, and Dr. Miles, uh, John, uh, was my program director. Oh, you got to call him Dr. Miles because he was your PD, right? <laughs> Makes it difficult to call him John, right? Uh, but uh, we've been serving together uh, at the college for many years and it's been one of the great joys of my professional career to get to work with John 
uh, in this capacity uh, after having trained uh, under him. He was, as you can imagine, a fabulous program director and a terrific mentor. Um, That's amazing. So you must be very proud, Dr. Mao. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I want to follow up on that. And I, I got to tell you, um, you know, in your career through the various stages, there, there's various opportunities. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed in, in my career now is seeing people graduate from medical school, become department chairman, many of them, um, and have people become president um, of the CAP, you know, who you were, tra- who you trained. So it's, uh, you know, it's really uh, a great fulfilling uh, to be, you know, part of uh, an academic program and educational process to see people develop throughout the career and, um, and become leaders of our profession. Thank you, Emily. Oh, gosh. Yeah, my pleasure. I, you know, one of the things I loved about pathology was the opportunity to get to look at disease directly, you know, that we weren't looking at shadows, right, like the radiologists, we weren't trying to sort of piece together, you know, what maybe the symptoms were with the long differential diagnosis, which was a fun intellectual exercise, but it, you know, was what, what is the actual answer? Uh, and I love that that's what we got to deal in is uh, the truth. I'd like to shout out uh, Ed Friedlander, who I don't know if we've ever had a chance to to talk about him in, in PathPod. Mike and uh, Sanam, do you, know, do you know this guy? I don't. He's, he's a famously, you know, like, so Cameron is Ed Friedlander and pa- Pathoma is Ed Friedlander. This is just He's just a understated guy in Kansas in Kansas City, but he's a famously good uh, lecturer and incredibly charismatic speaker. And apparently, he's the reason that Emily Volk uh, went into pathology. So it's it's pretty wow. amazing. It's pretty amazing. And he's he's uh, you know extensively uh, published his uh, lecture notes on online. So you can you can Google Ed Friedlander or or path guy. Path guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's in Mississippi now and, uh, still teaching, uh, at an osteopathic medical school down there and, uh, still putting things out on the web. And he's fun to follow on Facebook as well. Um, he's got, uh, not his scientific side, but also sort of a metaphysical side. That's really interesting. Um, the other person I really should shout out is, uh, Dr. Joe Parker. And uh, the cool thing about being at the University of Louisville is Dr. Parker was our chair at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. But my senior year of medical school, he moved to become the chair at the U of L. And so to be working in the department that he led for so many years is really cool. And Dr. Parker was a neuropathologist. uh, And uh, his son is John Parker, also a pathologist. And we went to med school together. But uh, Another wonderful mentor, um, a little bit more traditional uh, teacher, uh, Dr. Friedlander uh, is known for his uh, very uh, eclectic and unique teaching style. Uh, Dr. Parker was a little bit more on the straight and narrow. I'm a goofy guy myself. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what, life is about relationships for for me at least. And uh, this idea of mentorship is so, I mean, it's 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 the common thread that's 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 been woven through all these episodes of PathPod and IHC Talk. 
So thank you for thank you for sharing. It, it enriches the experience for me. It's absolutely absolutely true that every time we ask that question, somebody men- mentions a mentor. So it's really cool to have a mentor mentee pair on here. That's really awesome. Would you like to tell us how you got involved with the CAP? Absolutely. So at my first job at St. John's Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, uh, one of my new colleagues on that at that job was a pathologist named Bruce Jones, Dr. Bruce Jones, uh, another mentor. And Dr. Jones was just stepping down from the cytopathology committee. And I had just finished my fellowship in cytopathology at Beaumont uh, in uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, in the Detroit suburbs. And, you know, fresh out of fellowship, I thought I knew a whole lot and uh, thought, you know, it would be very exciting to be on the cytopath committee of the CAP when he mentioned that there was this opening. And so I applied and I was uh, delighted to be accepted as a member of that committee. I was not a so-called junior member, uh, but I was certainly junior uh, on the cytopath committee. And I walked into my first meeting and I was so blown away with who was in the room. You know, there was um, Jack Frable, Dr. Jack Frable was there. Uh, Dr. Dina Modi was there. Uh, Dr. Diane Davey was the chair. I could go on. Uh, Dr. Ann Moriarty is another one that comes to mind. Um, one amazing, famous cytopathologist after another one. And there was me. And, and at that time, a rather, rather unknown uh, Kareem Sirji. So Dr. Sirji and I were there together and looking around uh, in awe. And so I, I started on the cytopath committee uh, and it, it just opened a lot of doors. Um, the cytology proficiency testing issue popped up right around the time that I was on that committee. And that is how I got kind of turned uh, into the advocacy work at the CAP uh, and then eventually wound up uh, doing a lot for the CAP under that, uh, that part of the college. Emily, what other what other roles have you have you played uh, with the college over over the years since 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 that first committee assignment with Cytopath? Right. So I was on uh, a committee that that has been renamed, uh, but it was at the time called the Public Affairs Committee, and it dealt with uh, communi- you know communications and our public facing part of the organization. Uh, and in fact, John and I were on that committee together. Um, the uh, other role that I played was around the development of performance measures uh, for the PQRI and then the PQRS program, the Phys- Physician Quality Reporting uh, Initiative, uh, and then it developed into what we now know as MIPS, uh, the Merit Incentive-Based Payment System. And so I worked on that uh, under, again, the umbrella of the Council on Government and Professional Affairs and was the chair of that committee for a minute, and then it got subsumed by the Economic Affairs Committee because it clearly had a lot to do with how we were getting paid. And so in that role, I got to work closely with Dr. Miles again because he was, um, he was the chair of the Economic Affairs Committee uh, that uh, I got to serve on. So from there, uh, I uh, made a decision to run for the board uh, and uh, that was about 2013. And uh, I haven't looked back since. That's fantastic. If I may ask a question. So we have a lot of trainees that tune into this uh, podcast. 
Um, and, you know, obviously, I think what, what you have done for the organization, for the CAP, uh, both of you, for, for, you know, organizations that, that are uh, tremendously important in pathology is really fantastic. But can you tell us, you know, do you think that your involvement in these organizations has also helped you per personally or professionally in terms of your own growth and how it's helped you? I think it's encouraging for the trainees to know. I would say absolutely. Uh, the CAP has helped me all along my career. For one thing, it is just the world's best networking opportunity. Uh, you know, sitting in uh, the Cytopath Committee with all of these folks who are all, you know, invested in all over the country, right? And they're, and they're committed to the profession. Uh, and, you know, they know where the jobs are. Uh, they've, they know, uh, you know, the, uh, they give you good advice. You know, they have uh, the experience of their uh, academic and private practice careers to share. Um, just watching other leaders uh, lead meetings, uh, but also lead in other ways, you know, people who are um, good meeting uh, participants, people who follow through and, and watching the impact of that. Um, you know, all of those, all of those opportunities to see good examples of leadership and it's all its different forms at the college have enriched my career. Frankly, the work that I was able to do and, and to learn about with regard to performance measures and quality uh, as it's defined by CMS, right, um, have uh, really allowed me to move into an administrative role. You know, it's 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 how I got on the pathway to be a chief medical officer uh, because of my knowledge of of um, some of those systems and being involved in the development of some of the uh, solutions for pathologists. I'd love to hear about about John's journey, though. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It there's no question the CAP is a great organization and, um, you know, it certainly has advanced uh, my career in many, many ways. Y you know, the thing is, as a, you know, for the younger folks who are listening in, you can have a, a great life um, as a pathologist, um, you know, signing out your cases, working in the laboratory, interacting uh, with the clinicians, but your career is, you know, about growth. Um, and, the thing is, when a door opens, don't be afraid to walk through that. Um, don't be afraid for uh, for failure that you're not going to be good enough, or you or you know, continually learn. And, and that's really what I've done throughout my entire career. Um, I got interested in the CAP when I was working in Toledo. Uh, in my first job there, one of my responsibility was lab director of Magruder Hospital, a 60 bed hospital in Port Clinton, Ohio. And one of the governors at the CAP uh, at that time was a gentleman named uh, Dan Hansen from Toledo. And um, I gave Dan a call, says, hey, I, I want to do more. Um, I want to contribute to my profession. He goes, well, what are you interested in? And I said, government. So the next year I was on federal and state affairs. I got timed out, uh, uh, termed out out of that. Um, uh, I sat out a year and then I went back to economic affairs. But I've been involved in many other parts of the college. Uh, for example, public affairs. While on public affairs, Sandy Greer was uh, the CAP staffer. Sandy taught me how to present, how to get up in front of a group, 
um, how to get my message across um, to the to, to the audience. That that's the skill that I learned at the CAP. Okay. Going to the Engaged Leadership uh, Academy, I learned how to go to the Hill to advocate uh, for our profession. And the thing is, it those skills were not just useful going to the Hill. They were useful in my day-to-day practice by going to administration and making presentations to administration. Um, I was uh, at economic affairs for a long time, uh, served over 10 years on the American Medical Association RUC, the Relative Value Update Committee. And then I moved on to the board. And on the board, I've still continued uh, to learn. I was chair of the college's investment committee uh, for for two years, I was all, I've also been on the finance committee, and now uh, vice chair of the council on scientific affairs uh, as well. Also, I'm uh, chair of the uh, the CAP's uh, work group on cybersecurity. So I'm um, I'm continuing learning, and that's what you know. That's what a career is not about. It's being it's not being stagnant, but continuously trying to do better, trying to move to the to the next level. And the CAP has given me those opportunities. John, Thank you for sharing that. I think that's incredibly inspiring. I'm so interested, John, in the in the in the work that you've done with the CAP because it's so different than than the work that I've had the opportunity to do as a worker worker bee on a CSA committee. And I hope that over the next several years, we'll have opportunity to to dialogue. I can unequivocally say the single most impactful professional experience in my entire 15-year career has been serving on the College of American Pathologists Immunohistochemistry Committee. You said, uh, you asked how, you know, how has your engagement in CAP, like, you know, served you and made you a better person? And my professional growth in the last 10 years through working on this committee has been, it's amazing. And that's not just professional. The first time, the first time I went to a meeting in Monterey in the spring of 2013, I sat down between two guys, uh, Dennis O'Malley and Perry Dilworth, and they became two of my best friends. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I've made some of my best friends uh, at the CAP. And, and, you know, it's really, I will say this about uh, John, it's, it's really cool uh, to have um, a mentor become a colleague and a friend, you know, and all over all these years. And uh, I, who, who would have known that that had happened, but through the CAP, that kind of thing happens. I think. Yeah, you know, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's a transition, um, and uh, it's it's all about growth, and it's 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 growth for growth for everybody. The one thing, the comments that have been made about collegiality, they're they're so important. Um, we get additional skills, but just by going to a CAP meeting, or a committee, or a council meeting, and having dinner uh, with colleagues, you learn that. Um, your issues, it's not an island. Um, the issues that we have in our laboratory here, um, other laboratories have similar issues. And by talking to colleagues, we can come up really with solutions and get ideas. And the CAP facilitates that. Well, and I would even say it's not just solutions in your laboratory, right? I mean, I have gone to my CAP friends for uh, advice on how to deal with sticky situations at work, 
right? The interpersonal stuff that can really get, uh, it can be, it can be very important and very impactful. Uh, and uh, to see perhaps creative, more challenging than the technical troubleshooting. No doubt about it, right? Um, I mean, the technical stuff is easy. It's the relationship stuff that can get really hard. And you know, you not only do you, do I have now a bench of people that I can call and get an outsider's perspective, get get advice that I trust uh, from people who I know have my best interest at heart. Um, and have experience that I can learn from. It's fantastic. But then also things like, you know, being a working parent. You know, when I started, when I got involved with the CAP, I had little kids at home. And there were other, other young pathologists who were getting involved. And they also had, you know, had these kinds of issues to manage. And just learning how different people uh, figured figured these things out, you know, for child care or elder care, um, you know, just the day to day stuff. Uh, really, I've really counted on the CAP to 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 provide a forum for for those conversations to happen. We're certainly grateful to have organizations like the CAP to be a resource for pathologists and to advocate for legislative changes and. So I want to pivot a little bit towards the Valid Act. And since the Valid Act deals with laboratory-developed tests, what's the definition, the regulatory definition of a laboratory-developed test? You know, laboratory-developed uh, tests, they are uh, tests that are developed uh, within uh, a laboratory uh, that don't come in a kit form, but the test is uh, developed by an individual uh, laboratory and it's um, validated uh, within an individual uh, laboratory. I'll tack on something to maybe make it even more tangible in the IHC, in the IHC space. Uh, I counted, uh, I don't have it a, a perfect count because a lot of the IHC tests that I validate are actually I have to modify an existing test. I even have to make it from scratch. If I have to grab a new prime, if I need to grab a new primer, it's really a new test, but I'm not taking credit for, you know, the four times that I made a chromogran, an A assay from scratch, but new assays in my nine years as an IHC lab director, uh, I've uh, validated 94 new tests and 93 of them are laboratory developed tests. Only one of them is an FDA approved assay. And, and, and this, yeah. you know, that LDTs are pervasive, that they are what we do in the lab is not unique to immunohistochemistry. It applies to the molecular lab, lab the, you know, the chemistry lab, et, et cetera. You, you bring up a great point there um, if you're using an FDA-approved test in your laboratory and you make any uh, modification to it, it becomes an LDT. So there's no question that um, LDTs play um, a very uh, widespread role um, in our laboratories, and they're a very important part of delivering care. How is the practice for, for labs, how is it going to change from what they're doing now? Under the current process now, 
uh, with an LDT and uh, under under CLIA, the laboratory is still required uh, to do a validation study. Now that's analytic uh, validity, not uh, clinical validity. Under the Valid Act, the requirements would be different for uh, different types of tests depending upon the risk classification. The tests will be classified into low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And the scrutiny will be on the highest risk tests. So for example, uh, and the test classification will be uh, determined through the regulatory process. And we as stakeholders, we as laboratorians, will have the opportunity to participate in that uh, risk classification process. And that's why it's important for our scientifically oriented colleagues to be involved in the process and to participate in the, rule, in the rulemaking because our scientific colleagues have the ability to help shape the rule. And that's why it's important to stay at the table and stay engaged. Now, for a low-risk test, um, you won't have to go through the pre-certification process. You'll still have to do your validation studies like you've always done. You'll have to notify uh, the, the FDA that you will, that you are doing um, an LDT, um, but the FDA uh, will not directly review the data right off the bat. Um, if there's a problem, of course, they can step in. For the moderate risk tests, and um, that would likely be, um, if you look at the legislation, um, uh, and again, we don't have the regulation, so we don't know, but something like uh, next generation sequencing and mass spec, there's a lot of LDTs out there in that space. Those uh, types of tests would uh, likely be uh, classified as moderate risk. And the thing about the valid legislation is if you get pre-certification for a platform for one LDT in your laboratory, you can go and, and develop other LDTs without going through the pre-certification process. The highest scrutiny, again, will be on the, on the high-risk tests. There, um, you will have, uh, a, I anticipate you will have a significant uh, regulatory burden there for your high-risk tests. But if you have mitigating measures in place, which the statute talks about, that takes the test out of the high-risk category and puts it into a moderate risk where the requirements um, will, be, will be less. Please give us an example, first of all, of a high-risk test, a high-risk assay, and then an example of a mitigating measure. One of the definitions of high-risk test is that you, know, you have the potential there to cause irrevocable harm. Um, and one of the things could be, for example, um, let's say you do a HER2 assay. Um, that's certainly, that an erroneous result certainly can cause the patient harm, but there's proficiency testing in place for uh, HER2. Um, and that would likely take the test out of the high risk at, out of the high risk category. That would be a mitigating measure. 
Um, there's a variety of mitigating measures that are listed in the legislation, but there's also a clause in there that gives the secretary the ability to consider additional mitigating measures that will be brought forth. And we as stakeholders will be engaged in that process to help define those mitigating measures, what would be acceptable or not for a given assay. So, so what we're talking about, I think for high risk, what we predict will be in the high risk category our black box tests where there isn't transparency and there aren't any mitigating measures. So we, I, we believe that that's gonna be a very small uh, group of tests. I'll, I'll say that there's a perception that FDA approved assays are inherently superior to laboratory developed tests and that's certainly not the case that uh, carefully optimized and validated laboratory developed tests in the hands of experts, you know, uh, under the oversight of, uh, you know, the College of American Pathologists Laboratory Inspection Program, that those LDTs are non-inferior to FDA approved assays and in many instances are demonstrably superior. I think that um, there's no question that L uh, LDTs are an important uh, part of laboratory uh, operations. Now, you know, getting into the uh, Valid Act, one of the, one of the differences between the FDA and CLIA is that CLIA does not require clinical validity. Um, the other thing that CLIA doesn't require it doesn't require any um, adverse a reporting of any adverse events um, um, as the FDA does. And there's been a variety of LDTs out there um, over the years that have uh, not performed as uh, expected. And in fact, the FDA has gone on to uh, pull some of those tests. Now, most recently during the COVID testing, uh, when the Trump administration relaxed the requirements for LDTs and COVID testing, the FDA had to step in and, and pull some of those tests. So there, there are a lot of examples out there where LDTs have not um, you know, done what they've been uh, advertised to do. Now, the thing is, remember, in the laboratory community, we're not an island. Um, there's a lot of other stakeholders um, involved um, besides, uh, besides the laboratorians. So, you know, you have the regulators, um, you have the payers, but you have the patient groups as well. And these uh, untoward uh, events that have been uh, the result of um, LDTs really is what prompted the start of uh, uh, legislation to uh, regulate LDTs, and that that you know that that began with the Overshire event in uh, 2008. Now, the thing is, is that was uh, in uh, in a, a a laboratory test that was developed uh, by an academic uh, laboratory and then uh, marketed uh, by LabCorp. It's called the Overshire test. And uh, eventually, um, the test getting it got pulled from the market because uh, it was there. There were problems with with the way uh, the, with with the test. And if you're interested, 
Um, all you have to do is Google Overshare in the FDA, and and the first thing that comes up is the is the letter, and that's actually what happened is that that happened in two thousand eight. Within a couple of years of that, there were actually two bills introduced uh, to regulate the LDTs. These were the first one of first one. One of them was introduced by then Senator Barack Obama. Um, and uh, the Senator Burr of the of the current uh, Valid Act. The other one was introduced by uh, Senator Edward Kennedy and uh, uh, a senator from uh, Oregon, the last Republican senator for Oregon. So this has been around. The regulation of LDTs has been around for a long time. The FDA has um, um, exhibited enforcement discretion. Um, in regard to LDTs, and this has been an evolving process. The Valid Act um, has been around uh, for uh, in various drafts for for four years. There's been three drafts that have been circulated, but the actual bill that was actually introduced was, you know, just this just this year. And um, we at the CAP have been at the table throughout the process, commenting and making um, each version um, a little bit uh, a little bit better to get uh, where we wanted. Patient groups, the stakeholders, um, have been also involved um, in, in the process, and um, including they're led really by the Pew Charitable Trust, and um, also professional. There are professional organizations um, other than the CAP that um, are uh, supporting that the current version of VALID move to the floor for a vote, most notably ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology. So the, the current version of the bill, um, it, it's not perfect, um, but um, we think that it's a great consensus bill. Uh, the result of input by various uh, stakeholders um, it it um, defers a lot to rulemaking, um, and that's why the bill doesn't take effect to 2027. We're going to have a, a lot of opportunity uh, for input um, into the actual regulations. And uh, actually, one of the things in the bill is that it requires uh, stakeholder input in various forms. But what the bill does is it actually puts guardrails around the FDA as to how it can regulate LDTs. Those guardrails don't exist now. If valid um, does not pass, the FDA is still gonna regulate um, LDTs. With this bill, there are some guardrails around it. You know, I like to think of it as, you know, you can have free range FDA in the lab, uh, or you can have focused FDA in the lab. And um, that's, that's what we think this current version the current version, uh, the most recent version, and it's important to really be focused on the most recent version because there were, you know, again, this has been over four years. There have been several other versions uh, where uh, the, the guardrails around what the FDA would do were not as prescriptive and as limited. And I think it's one of the reasons we're so keen on seeing this version pass is we believe that uh, this is in many ways the best deal we're going to get. And so that's not a particularly easy message to message. Um, and in, you know, in some ways, it would have been easier for us to just stand outside of this whole thing and say, nope, we don't want FDA in the lab. There's no need for FDA in the lab. Um, but 
again, that we didn't see that as a politically viable uh, or wise uh, move for the profession. We wanted to make sure that this, you know, that the profession, the pathologists were considered a trusted partner in developing the framework where the FDA would have some oversight over the highest risk tests to patients. Um, and, I, and I do think the details of this, of this current version are really, really important. Uh, Andrew, to your points earlier, so much of the work that you do is in the laboratory developed test realm. It touches a lot of the specialty. We, I mean, anatomic pathology, clinical pathology. But I believe that um, most, with, with all of the guardrails that are in place and the opportunity for uh, input during rulemaking, I, I believe we, we will come out of this with something we can live with that does not stifle innovation uh, and allows our profession to thrive. This is, this is a real toughie. Emily, you're, you know, you're saying that this is, that this is, that this is maybe imperfect, uh, that this is this, that there's a lot of politics at play, uh, and that the, the college's position is to be supportive such that, uh, we have a seat at the tape at the table. Well, let me, let, let, yeah. if I can, let me be very clear about that. We've had a seat at the table. Yes. We've been in continuous dialogue, right? And and again, this, this is something that has bipartisan and bicameral support. That's remarkable in this current landscape politically. I mean, this has Republican support, conservative Republican support, and liberal Democrat, Democrat uh, support. So that's really important to understand. And there's support in the House and in the Senate. And, and we don't see that support going away even after midterm elections, okay? Yeah, Th yeah. So and this is, this is- Really super, important super to understand important that, right? That it's, that, it's go that it's going through, you know, with the, with the college or without, or without the college. That's and exactly it's right. For the college to be in, in the game, to have a seat at the table, to, uh, be really impactive, impactful around the rule, the rulemaking after the legis legislation passed. Well, and we've been impactful with the current version of ballot, yes. quite frankly. I mean, the three-tiered system that, you know, really, you know, allows for a number of meth a number of pathways to get from a high-risk test down into a moderate or lower risk tier. Uh, for most of, I believe, the vast majority of LDTs uh, that are in laboratories right now, in most clinical laboratories. You know, I'm speaking in broad strokes here. A couple points. You know, the advocacy is certainly going to be important in rulemaking, but it actually was very important now in the legislative process. You know, if you choose to sit outside, you know, that, that, that that's fine, but it's important to be at the table to get the provisions that, that are important to your profession in the bill. One of the uh, examples is grandfathering. That was not a slam dunk. There were a large number of folks who did not want a grandfather provision in the bill. If that were if that were not included in the current version, the regulatory burden 
on laboratories would be much, much, much greater. The other thing that's um, in the current version of the bill, if you have an LDT and alter it, as long as you don't adversely affect the performance characteristics um, of the test, you don't have to go through pre-certification again. The other thing is that with the third-party accreditors, the third-party accreditors can submit data on behalf of the laboratory to the FDA for moderate and low-risk tests. By including that provision, again, you're minimizing the uh, regulatory burden on laboratories. The other thing that we have we've heard from uh, some of our members is concern over the cost of the program. Um, the fees uh, for this will be negotiated between the stakeholders and the FDA. Typically the stakeholders are the large national organizations. They negotiate a fee structure with the FDA and then that has to go to back to Congress for uh, approval. But again, we as stakeholders are gonna have input into that process. If it's like other FDA programs and other CMS programs, the laboratory with $800 million in revenue is not going to have the same structure as the laboratory with $8 million in, in revenue. So again, by being at the table, we can ensure that um, the smaller laboratories are not disadvantaged and can participate in the process. And we want to make sure that there are provisions um, in the legislation and the rulemaking that do not disadvantage the mom and pop lab. My main concern is that the FDA will lack the resources for this regulatory oversight. They're currently evaluating about 4,000 510K applications a year. And now we're looking at, you know, trying to register 100,000 or a couple hundred thousand yeah. uh, laboratory developed tests. I think that you bring up an important topic and that is funding for the program. Um, in the, the bill that was passed out of Senate help, $480 million uh, were included to get the program set up. Um, that's not uh, funding um, in, infinitum. So uh, the, the 480 million is what's needed to get the program up. If that monies would not be enough, it would slow the process down. Um, after the bill takes effect in 2027, the program would be funded just like any other federal program on a year-to-year -year basis, um, just, like, just like everything else. Um, the thing is, is that one of the things that the valid includes is the provision for third-party accreditors. Who that, who that accreditor uh, will be, or you know, it'll be likely multiple um, accreditors, um, uh, those folks will be able to do a lot of the administrative work of the FDA in terms of the moderate and low risk tests. The only tests that the FDA has to get directly involved in will be the high risk tests. And if you have any of the mitigating measures that apply, your test will be taken out of the um, high risk category. Now, one of the things that um, in terms of third-party accreditors, there is discussion that um, in terms of the FDA's, quote, inspection um, of the laboratory for LDT, it may be possible uh, to combine that with some other types of uh, inspections that go on. For example, 
um, we at CAP um, are, do laboratory inspections, as do other, other deemed uh, organizations. Some states have uh, specific regulations in addition to the uh, CAP checklist, for example, the state of Washington. And uh, the, the way the CAP accreditation is set up is we can do what's required for Washington at the same time we're doing the CAP uh, the, the CAP inspection. So again, the details as to how exactly this is going to work is going to be determined through rulemaking, and we'll have the opportunity to provide input into that. Much better to defer this to rulemaking rather than having it in statute. When it's in statute, you have to go back to legislation to change it. And we've had some bad examples of that. One is cytology proficiency testing for pathologists. Can't get that changed. The other thing, in-office ancillary exception in anatomic pathology, that's in legislation. We haven't been able to get that changed, even there's, there's good reason to do so. So we think that the rulemaking is the approach. We're going to be there and we are going to try to minimize the effect uh, what we can uh, regulatory burden on the laboratories by leveraging the existing processes that we have. I think that's very important. And, you know, the other thing that I want to point out, if the appropriate funding is in place, this may be an opportunity for pathologists and our organizations. You know, we have experts that can serve in these roles. And, you know, if the, if the, the, the appropriate funding is in place, I think this could certainly be an opportunity for us as a specialty in, in general. Well, would you as agree? a matter of fact, at the FDA, we have uh, a fellow of the College of American Pathologists, uh, you know, Dr. Tim Stencil, uh, mm -hmm. providing uh, expertise to that government yeah. agency. Yeah. So I, I suspect, as you say, uh, Sanam, that with that $480 million and, and you know, possibly more money down the road, uh, they'll be able to fund uh, getting the appropriate experts in place. I, I yeah. appreciate the concern based on people's recent experience uh, with the EUA process uh, around COVID-19 testing and so on. But we believe they will uh, fund uh, this legislation. Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm still concerned about turnaround, turnaround time and cost print principally the average turnaround time for the approval of an FDA FDA approved assay is two right. two years yeah no no and, I hear you and I and think I that's bring valid, up, but... and I bring up 10 tests a year and does yeah. That mean, yeah John the, does that mean I have to use, I have to wait two yeah. years to use my new immunohistochemistry test yeah the legislation actually addresses that and um there are specific time frames for various types of right. things the FDA is involved in. You know, if you look at the time frames, most of them are between 30 and 90 days the FDA is given to respond. And so and the, 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 other, the legislators heard you. The other concern, and again, yeah, like this has been this has been iteratively modified for, for four for four years. Mm -hmm. uh, what can you can you even ballpark? what it's going to cost to register a test and what it's going to cost to pre-certify a test. And, and I know, so, I, and you, you did mention, and this is important for the listeners that not everybody pays the same, that there's, that there's always been a different rate. There's a standard rate and then there's a small business rate. And I would imagine that, you know, most hospital-based labs and academic medical centers would qualify for a small 
business rate, but the in the current medical device user fee amendment, the schedule, the fee schedule, this and this is what's actually this valid is tacked to that. Mm -hmm. uh, that for a 510k, it's 3200 $3, And for a PMA, which is fa fancier, uh, it's almost a hundred thousand dollars. And so are the fees for the registrations, are they gonna be three thousand dollars or or three hundred dollars. Yeah, it, it abs absolutely. Fees are a concern to us at the CAP too, um, and uh, we, we certainly want to minimize. We'll be advocating to minimize any um, burden on the laboratory in that regard. But that's why the fees are negotiated. That's why the bill says fees are negotiated, and that they're not deferring to the the fee schedule that um, you referred to. The other thing in the bill. Uh, remember, it doesn't take effect to 2027. There's a study that has to be done by 2025, the effect of valid on hospital laboratories. So, um, you know, that information um, will be available before uh, we go live uh, with valid if it passes and there's opportunity to tweak. So Congress will have more information available before they approve the fee schedule. That comment around the you know the the ask for a study on the impact of the valid act on labs due by 2025 that wasn't in the original another thing that was not in the original valid That's act exactly that, was, right. that was added in june that was one yeah. of the amendments in june yeah. through the continued active uh advocacy on behalf on behalf of you know our constituents as you know um valid is really uh, top of line now. Um, really, since this has been going on, this is the greatest chance of passage of LDT legislation. So I think that now that folks realize, you know, that this thing may pass, they wanted to make sure we in included the appropriate safeguards. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, Congress has been asking FDA to solve the problem um, that patient groups are bringing forward around their concerns ab about some laboratory developed tests uh, for some time now. Even in just this last year, there was an article in the New York Times that everybody should take a look at. Uh, it was in January 1st, uh, 2022, New York Times, and it's on non-invasive pregnancy tests. And that article spurred uh, another request from Congress, again, bicameral, bipartisan request from Congress for FDA to, you know, to do something. So, you know, an FDA is saying, sure, give us the framework. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of politics around non-invasive pregnancy tests, right? If women are terminating pregnancies based on these laboratory developed tests and you know, that can get both sides uh, of the political spectrum pretty exercised. That's the thing. Everybody agrees that that not just laboratory developed tests, that all laboratory tests must be held to the to the highest standards, including all of our constituents. All, you know, all pathologists are very passionate about the work that they do and the and the quality of the of the work that they do. You know, I've never met a pathologist who got out of bed in the morning to create a lousy test. Right. Right. I, I really haven't. I haven't really met a healthcare worker who got out of bed in the morning to harm a patient. Right. Uh, for sure. 
And, you know, I think the CAP accreditation process is fabulous. Uh, it's one of the, you know, it's, I think what we should, it's one of the things that we share and our love for the CAP is how proud we are of this peer driven uh, laboratory accreditation process. And that doesn't go away, right? That doesn't go away. And, and, and uh, again, thanks to the advocacy of the CAP, the valid uh, provisions don't duplicate what's already in CLIA. And it also, you know, it also, uh, does not interfere with the practice of medicine, which is very important to our physician organization. Uh, but again, the political uh, realities are that we believe this is coming and we we'd rather have some say in how it comes uh, rather than just stand back and be mad that it's coming. You know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, my, my observation is that, that the college is taking a really pragmatic approach and, you know, informed by this really robust Council on Government and Professional Affairs. This position is incredibly pragmatic and it's deeply informed by a long history of engage, engaging in politics, like CAP's good at politics, right? Uh, and and CAP is amazing at science, right? Because I mean, uh, but we, we are good at science and I'm glad you said that. I really yeah. am glad you said that because I think people forget that we're good at science, which is amazing to me, given the extent of our proficiency testing programs and our lab accreditation programs. And because we have resources like people like yourself, um, who will partner with us as we go into rulemaking, you know, so that the CGPA, the, the Council on Government and Professional Affairs, the advocacy arm comes together with our our huge scientific arm, which is the biggest arm of the college, uh, is the Council on Scientific Affairs. And we bring that expertise together to uh, really light the way for implementation around valid should this pass. I think, I think it's gonna be okay. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of work in front of us. And so, you know, rather than wasting a lot of energy, frankly, being mad, and I, and I get that there are people who are mad. And I'm, my, my sincere hope is that if this passes, those folks who are really mad, but who are also experts in laboratory medicine and who love our profession as much as I know everybody on this, on this cat podcast today does, that we can come back together and figure this out for patients and for our, our pathologist uh, colleagues. You know, I'm really glad you, you said that, Dr. Bulk, because I think this comes back to the full circle, you know, about what I asked you in the beginning is becoming actively involved in, in our organizations. And I think this is very important for, you know, for experts in their respective fields to serve the community, right, to, to become engaged with the CAP, to offer their expertise so that we can engage with the FDA and make, you know, make the valid act what it's supposed to be in that it serves the laboratories and the patients, right? So this, this can be a good thing if exercised appropriately. Right, a lot of non-value-added work in laboratories, a lot of extra paperwork doesn't serve patients well. I agree with you, right. totally agree with you. So again, that's why we're gonna need to come together and be really thoughtful about how we guide this thing forward. I'm a pragmatist and a mitigator and I know that I have a lot of, I know that I have a lot of work to do either 
in my, you know, at home or nationally, if I have, if I have the opportunity, I guess I would, I would like to hear you guys speak to the organizations that are opposed to, uh, to valid. A lot of us are involved in multiple, you know, multiple of these professional organizations. First of all, sometimes doing the right thing doesn't mean doing the popular thing. I would also remind you that the CAP is an organization of board certified pathologists. Um, and, you know, we have a, a very, you know, we do have a strong voice in Washington, DC, and we prefer if we had some of these organizations supporting our positions. Um, we have, we are a 501c6 organization, which uh, is unique. Uh, it means that we're, you know, a nonprofit, uh, but we're also um, allowed to lobby to the full extent of the law. Um, a 501c3 uh, has federal limits on its lobbying, and many of those organizations are just that. So we, we do have a strong investment in Washington, D.C. in understanding real politics. So our view is informed by what we see and what we know. Um, my sincere hope is that if valid passes, that these other organizations will uh, work with us uh, as we walk through rulemaking, just like the college will be working uh, to walk through rulemaking informed by our vast scientific expertise. And I know that they will, because the alternative is to, you know, to be disenfranchised, right? And, and these other professional organizations, and a lot of the membership is common, right? But the, you know, this is, this is where the, you know, the deep scientific expertise is. And this, I mean, this is the input that's going to be sorely needed in the rulemaking process. You know, the thing about it is, is we've known that FDA was put a stake in this ground. We've known that for 14, you know, 14 years, yeah. right? When they pulled the overture test, nobody said, you don't have the right to pull the overture test. There was no opposition to doing that, right? So we've, we've seen this coming. It's not sudden. It feels sudden, I think, to some people, but it's really not sudden. And, you know, again, the CAP's position is what is a viable solution? Sure. And I haven't seen a viable solution from some of these organizations who are opposing us on this, or who oppo not oppose us, but oppose our position on valid. And again, we're going to have to get over having been on different sides of this thing, should this thing, should this thing pass. And we're going to have to work together and we want to work together. I mean, we're, you know, we're in a relatively small specialty. I do believe that it's important for us as a specialty uh, to be involved, actively involved in this, right? Um, so I think that it's, it's, I'm really glad that we had this discussion and, you know, kind of advocated for this position. At, at least I did. <laughs> I think, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good sales pitch to join the cap, right. And to, to have an opportunity to, to have your voice heard and that there are so many, there are so many opportunities to do so many things so many things through this incredibly yeah. wide-ranging professional organization. I just really appreciate the opportunity to 
uh, you know, have this discussion today. And uh, I know that emotions are running high uh, around this thing. Uh, and, you know, we at the CAP believe we're doing the right thing uh, by uh, encouraging this version of valid to pass. And we believe that we're playing the long game for the good of the profession. Yeah. That would, and, and if it passes, our goal would be to, to work through the rulemaking process and make sure that pathologists are well represented. I can't thank everyone enough for, for joining us for this. Really appreciate your time. Oh, th- thank listen, you. Thank you for everything you're doing for the profession. And Andrew, thank you for, you know, all of your work on the IHC committee, you know, and it's, it's really yeah. nice to, to get to know you a little bit better to all of you a little bit better today. To both of you, I think, you know, we're, we're truly fortunate to have leaders like you representing us. Thank, Thank you. you. This was fantastic. Pleasure to be here. I'm just tickled to uh, be a part of this uh, podcast at all. Really appreciate it. Well, it's happened again. You squandered a perfectly good hour listening to IHC Talk. Don't stain like my chromogen symbols. Don't stain like my brother's. Don't stain like my siblings. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.